Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. Tom, good morning. It's race week. Um, a great week in Galway always. Uh, I have great childhood memories of race week, apart from adult races. I don't go out now much. I might go out at the weekend when it's quieter. It must be my age. But um, I'm aware I'm aware of the races, and it's always a very great event in the middle of summer for Galway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And always has been yeah. for a very long time. Uh, yeah. And in fact, that's what I'm writing about as well. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It's been going on for hundreds of years, really. I mean, uh, you know, Galway was always a great hunting county, and therefore uh, there was a lot of horses, a lot of point-to-point races mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, they were in various places around the county, particularly in the east of the county. Uh, and then for a number of years, they were racing in Kiltullet. But eventually, in 1869, the uh, races came to Ballybrit for the first time. 1869, my goodness. Yeah, it's over 150 years ago. That is It's a very long time ago, and uh, they have been there ever since. Yeah. And not only have they been there, but they've been growing ever since as well. Yeah. One of uh, I, I'm not a racing man mm. at all. I have really very little interest in horses unless they're painted on canvas or, yeah. uh, you know, cast yeah. in bronze. And there's a few good <laughs> but, artists that do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Although, funnily enough, a lot of artists would not dream of trying to paint horses. It's very difficult yeah. to put movement on canvas. Right. <laughs> and so... Uh, you will get a lot of painters, you'll get a lot of amateurs, and if you look closely at the painting they have done of the horse, their hooves are standing on the top of the blades of grass, if you know what I mean. Right. And uh, So it's very difficult. So for that reason, a lot of artists will not go near animals of any kind, in fact. Right. Uh, but happily, there are others who will. But the, yeah, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, land was handed over to the races committee and they it was all, you know, um, it was all winds and bog and rock and everything. And uh, they spent quite a long time uh, working on it, clearing it to being the race course it is today. The very first Galway Plate was run in 1869. It was a very hot day. The sweltering heat of early August shimmered over the vast crowd swarming the hill of Ballybrit as the <laughs> horses thundered by. Right. Out of a multicolored cavalcade, the favorite shot ahead as the roar of the multitude seemed to lift him past the post and mm. narrow winner. And that was how a Mr. Bell rode his horse to victory at three to one, carrying 
Nine stone, 11 pounds in a field of 13 runners for a stake of 166 pounds. Uh-huh. And that was the first Galway plate. And of course, <laughs> it is, it's yeah. the centerpiece, I suppose, of the race. It is, it and, is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they, there was a very famous journalist about 80, 90 years ago in this country, P.D. Mehigan was his name. And he once <clears throat> asked a, a breeder, would you please explain to me the magic of the Galway plate? And he, all he said was, it takes only a real good horse can win it. And that's the way, apparently, that he said it. And when Mr. Mehigan went checking, he suddenly realized that he was right. No bad horse or even a middling horse had ever won the Galway plate. And he began to think about it. And he walked the course. And this is how he described the course. He said, when you walk the searching course, the reasons are clear. The undulating surface, the formidable jumps, the fine galloping stretches, the steep fall and demanding rise with two firm leaps, one behind the other when the horses are tired. That pinch into the straight, the slope, the fast finishing, flat. All these test the best qualities of a true chaser. He must be a clever fencer with speed and stamina to get home in front of a field that always includes the best horses in Ireland. And that's a poetic description of the course, really. And also, of course, points out some of the difficulties required are to be overcome if you are going to win uh, the Galway plate. (laughs) But from the very beginning, it was a curious thing that Ballybrit became not just a racing meeting, there was a whole festival atmosphere around it as well uh, from the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, I had the, the, what I have in the paper this week is a drawing from the illustrated London news and it's 1879 and it is people heading towards the race course. They're on foot, they're on horseback, they're on all kinds of horse-drawn vehicles. But there's all this enthusiasm and anticipation about yeah. the thing. This has to be one of the earliest images around of the Galway races. Uh, this was done only 10 years after the first Bally Brit event. <coughs> Excuse me. So it's, um, it was always that. It was always um, yeah. for the people. Yeah. You know, uh, caravans and their picturesque owners are making the trek weeks ahead. Urgent farm work is abandoned for the hour. <laughs> Business yeah. and professional men, regular racegoers, hunting folk, farmers from all ranges of acreage, holiday trippers from eastern cities, Connemara and Iron Island men and maids who speak Irish only are here in colorful, buoyant groups. Absolutely. All, all the fun of the fair. Yeah. Huge fields of beautiful horses, thrilling finishes, and good priced winners. All lend glamour and life to this great outdoor festival in the West. <laughs> and that's um, what it always was. It really was. And you see, there are two sides to it, isn't there? There's the stand side, you know, for the more serious scores and the more fashionable ladies, I would have thought. Then there is the yeah. great outside, they call it. And yeah. you'd have all the Dublin accents selling the fruit and the race cards and all of yeah. that from Moore Street, I'd say, selling bananas and pineapples and peaches and pears. Yeah. And... Uh, 
ham sandwiches and tea and you know there were great excitement out there and there'd be little rides for children as well so there was actually yeah. something for everything and all that side was free so it, yes. it really opened up to the whole of Ireland really people used to come you'd hear the accents from all over the place you know that, yeah. that was yeah. the fun of it really was and it had the longest bar in the world <laughs> on the stand side. In so. the form of a marquee run by <laughs> Ned Walsh from uh, the old malt pub. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so there was a, a really yeah. terrific sense of excitement. And yeah, uh, like they had a lovely tradition when you're talking about it <clears throat> for local people who could not afford to go up on the stand, for example, during yeah. the race meeting. Yeah. But on the Sunday before the races in the old days, they were, it was open house. They walked the course. They walked all through all the facilities. They were up on the stand. They were invited in yeah. by the staff. And I, I thought that was a lovely kind of uh, yes. local tradition. And it, mm. it sort of emphasized that while the race meeting is a very big local celebration, it's a national as well. And indeed today it's international, thanks to <laughs> television and so yes. on. You know? Well said. Well, it was always a big event in our house because uh, the family O'Gorman's printing house printed the race cards and the, yeah. the runners weren't declared until about 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock the previous night before the, yeah. the day of the races. So it was an all night printing affair. Everything was hand set, of course, at the time. And there was a huge atmosphere in the printing house. And we used to come in as small boys to kind of enjoy that. And the grandmother would come in with trays of sandwiches and tea. And there was a, a great kind of party atmosphere, if you like, sort of, you know, we as boys caught it, caught the atmosphere. So we yeah. went out to the race course. Yeah. It was like one good time after another, you know, and it yeah, was it great. Was, yeah. We'd be there in all fact, day. Yeah. Yeah. I remember fun. waking up uh, to voices outside shouting, race card, race card, That's official fine. race card, yeah. <clears throat> walking up and down the street early in the morning, yeah. selling these. Uh, and as I said, that sense of excitement just conveyed itself. And of course, the pubs seemed to stay open all night. They added to the whole celebratory yeah. thing. Hotels were packed. Pubs were packed. Yeah. Yeah. The street was packed. The traffic was very oh, different. We'd complain. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's not a complaint. And then in recent yeah. years, the thing, um, you know, you had the arts festival running for two weeks <clears throat> and finishing on a Sunday. And you woke up on Monday morning and there was a completely different atmosphere on the street. Yeah. Completely different. It was now the Galway Race Week Festival. And it was a different crowd. And it was wonderful. This kind of uh, variety uh, just added greatly, I think, to the charm and attractions yeah. of the city, you know. Oh, totally. You had, you had a lot of people. Uh, I was intrigued um, for several years in High Street. This Dublin family, there were about seven of them. They would come and stay in juries for the week. They would have their breakfast. They would buy all of the newspapers. They would go into the bunch of grapes mid or late morning, spread all these papers around <laughs> and spend the day there watching yeah. television, yeah. checking out horses and running around the corner to the bookies. Lovely. And I thought this was madness. <laughs> but in fact, it was their holiday. This yeah. was what they simply loved doing. 
<laughs> and you have to respect that, I think. Yeah, and, uh, and then I was kind of amazed at them, to, to be honest, you know. Uh, so it's it's a remarkable festival, yeah. and yeah. I have to say, yeah, <laughs> I greatly admired the committee. Yeah, because every year they seem to add on some other kind of an improvement to the yeah. place. The facilities keep improving and getting better, and the complex today is just quite remarkable. Yeah, really, yeah. and they draw crowds. Yeah, that are sort of unheard of and at most other race meetings. Tom, it's, it's very democratic because I know a lot of people used to do bed and breakfast and you yeah. mightn't like the neighbours to know you were doing bed and breakfast. But certainly <laughs> I know in certain areas they would say, oh, we're friends staying now for race week. And uh, that's the way they kind of got over it. But everybody benefited from race week. It was just well, they did. Yeah, extraordinary without uh, occasions. Without As you say, the restaurants and the shops and the sandwich makers and all of these people. So it was a great event. No, yeah. you're lovely. I'm so glad you're highlighting that. But why wouldn't the, oh. the committee, as I say, open to ideas? I mean, yeah. when Fergus Foley, when the late Fergus Foley came up with the idea of a ladies' day, yeah, I'm sure they thought first of all that this was purely to puff himself up, and yeah. secondly, <laughs> it was a daft idea. Yeah, and sure, it's a worldwide phenomenon it today, is. and it, it adds considerably to just again. I mean. The delights of Ladies' Day are very distracting, I have to say, uh, <laughs> up there. And uh, they look, again, they look absolutely marvellous. They really they do. do. Yeah, they do. On the street as well. You know, it's, it's yeah. terrific. And it has yeah. prompted some of the young men to look smart as well. You see, yes, I agree. Well turned yeah. out young men, and rightly so. Okay, Tom, that's just that's just great fun. I, I'm well, it's a bit of fun, I think. Yeah. And it. well worth celebrating. Well, uh, well said in every sense. Yeah. Well, I'm doing something that has a bit of madness to it as well, because I'm continuing the story of Galway's ambitions to be the the port uh, that would service the uh, eastern cities of America, <laughs> and they would leave Liverpool behind them, and. Part of this uh, energy and this uh, excitement was generated by the arrival of steam power. And we yeah. can't uh, underestimate that. There's a famous painting by Turner, of which you know, of a, yeah. a, 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 a paddle ship, a steam-driven little paddle ship, towing the fighting temeraire, temeraire great yeah. ship of yeah. Nelson's Navy, towing it actually to the stockyard to be broken up, kind of epitomizes yeah. this era that has come, you know, that has descended upon Europe uh, with great excitement and possibilities. I mean, for travel alone, using steam trains and steamboats, uh, you know, the time to get from Galway to London uh, was 18 hours. Uh, Paris, to get to Paris from Galway was reckoned about 30 hours. And there was even mad talk of one complete, perfectly straight and continuous immense chain of steam communications to uh, from St. Petersburg in Russia, through the British Isles to Galway, on to New York, which could be done, it was reckoned, in 15 days or less. So that's in the middle of the 19th century. So that really was a great talking point. And naturally, it fueled the excitement that Galway should have this transatlantic port. Yeah, now, of course. Uh, it was really helped on its way. 
by the Midland the Midland and Great Western Railway, who we mentioned before, uh, they, they were excited about it and they extended the railway from Mullingar to Galway so the passengers could be brought. This was the plan to bring the passengers gently through Ireland on a steam train to Galway where they could relax for the afternoon and then board uh, a, a paddle ship that would bring them safely over to America. Of course, all these times, you know, the 16 hours and the 18 hours and the four, six days to cross to the America was based on ideal weather conditions. So, you know, uh, nobody spoke about the times that you and I know of when the Atlantic can really <laughs> can show its power. But anyway, I just want to pick up the story again. So we had the first boat in this wonderful enterprise, the Indian Empire was sailing into Galway Bay on a beautiful, beautiful, clear June afternoon, June 16, 1858. And the two pilots got on board, two men, Henry Burbage and Patrick Wallace. And for no unknown reason, the pilots themselves seemed to ram the boat up on the Mayala, the Margarita Rock, the only rock in the middle of Galway Bay. At every child in Galway knows it's there because you can see it when the tide is low and you could hear the, the foghorn when I was growing up and I'm sure you heard it yourself, moaning, Indeed. reminding people of the rock that was there. So immediately people thought sabotage, the Liverpudlians, yeah. jealous of Galway uh, moving forward this project, have bribed the poor old uh, uh, um, pilots and... Uh, when they were taken ashore, they were dragged in front of a court in a justice. And, you know, they didn't say anything because I think they were frightened. And it was put to them very squarely that, you know, tell us who the uh, bribers are. And um, one of the backers, the main backer of the whole Galway enterprise was a Manchester businessman, John Oral Lever. And he yeah. offered 200 pounds to each of the pilots if they would confess as to who prompted them or bribed them to ram the great ship, the Indian Empire. And we don't know. We don't know what happened because the story moves on. The two men are put into jail to await further trial. And the whole town is alarmed at this now because everybody was full of expectations for this uh, project to succeed. The railway had to come. Everything was coming in order. Lever had arrived with ships that he was going to lease to the company that would bring the uh, immigrants over to America. And so all set to go. But, um, you know, with all the great... Best made plans, Tom, yourself, you know, things yeah. can go wrong. And the most dramatic thing that went wrong was that one of the pilots, Patrick Wallace, in jail, suddenly died. And terrible outcry of that. Again, people assumed that there you go. The Liverpudlians, they have poisoned him. They have managed to get some yes. wicked poison into his stomach uh, to stop him telling uh, who was behind this deed. So that really all hell broke loose at that stage. There was consternation throughout the town. You know, had Wallace been poisoned by some unscrupulous Liverpudlian to stop him talking or had he committed suicide? Nobody knew. And to be honest with you, I don't know myself because I've only come that far with the story because I'm so engrossed. And there are so many 
you know, interpretations. All our great historians in the modern time in, in Galway, uh, John Cunningham and all of them, they've written about this because it's a great Galway story. Of and it, I mean, it really is. And it captures the excitement of the era. And it certainly captures, you know, the, the dreams that people had of steam power. So uh, I actually don't know what happened to poor old Patrick Wallace. I'll try and find out. And when I do, I'll tell you next week. Thank you, Ronnie. I'm looking forward to that. Get rid of all those conspiracy theories. I know, that, it's wonderful, isn't it? Yes. That were flying around this city. You can yeah. really imagine it. I know the crowds and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Also, there's an appearance of Father Peter Daly, a turbulent priest, probably Very. one of the richest priests in Ireland. Uh, he was a ruthless landlord, and uh, yeah, he yeah. was a member of the Harbour Board and a member of the Urban Town Commissioners, and yeah. a substantial investor in the <laughs> transatlantic uh, steamship yeah. company. Yeah, he, he was comes... actually, sorry, he was responsible <clears throat> when they were building the railway. The original intention was that the terminus would be at Renmore. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. But he owned what, what we now know as the Great Southern Hotel. That was all tenements. And it was Father Daly who owned that. And he simply evicted the whole lot of them. <laughs> and... Uh, leveled the buildings and managed to get the uh, railway people to bring the railway line across the bridge, what we now know as the Lakatalia Bridge, and yeah. right in to the heart of the city. Wonderful. But in doing that, which sounds wonderful, he evicted all these tenants, and he was quite well known for doing it. Oh, yes, the industrial, school, yeah. the industrial school in Lower Salt Hill, <coughs> he built a uh, what we now know as the industrial school, without planning permission. Not only did he have, not have permission, he didn't own the land. <laughs> and it went to court and he lost everything. He lost the building, etc. Yeah. Uh, this Mrs. Grattan, who really was the legal owner, she was handed over the, uh, the building and that then eventually became the industrial school. Right. But he he was, as you say, quite ruthless. A ruthless man. But he yeah. was adored in the town. The town seemed to have liked him very much. And uh, he was an they, entrepreneur, yeah. He, he was. was, but but yeah. uh, as you say, with a very shady background to him. But anyway, yeah. Tom, that's the future. And um between yeah, next races week. now and steam power, I think we've got enough excitement for today. And okay. uh, I enjoyed. I enjoyed thinking about the races as well. Well, here's to next week. Yeah, you betcha. Enjoy yeah. the few days, Tom. Thank you, Ronnie. God bless. Bye bye. Now. bye, -bye.